0: Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dal Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. The Sendcast concept started a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. There's lots of stuff to read, but we're all very busy and don't have time to sit and read. Everyone working in schools needs training and support around SEND, but the funding isn't there to achieve this. We created the Sendcast to try and help solve that problem, to make schools more inclusive. To help teachers be teachers of SEND and help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the SENcast, we have a different guest that I've invited to talk about a specific area. My guest this week is Fintan O'Regan. Fintan has been a head teacher, a lecturer for Leicester University, and now works as a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems. And in this episode, we're discussing ADHD. Is it a challenge or is it an opportunity? The is created and produced by B-Squared and over the last 25 years B-Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND and over the last few years we have diversified. For years we have focused on an assessment and this will always be our main focus but we have seen a lack of high quality easy to access training and CPD for schools around SEND Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started two years ago with the Virtual Send Conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses, including Finton's training course, by going to the Training for Education website, which is www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing ADHD, how people see it, and is it a challenge or an opportunity? My guest is Finton O'Regan. Finton is a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems, including social services, health, the police force, and foster carers. He's worked with a number of organisations, including Nason, Institute of Education, Leicester University, the UK ADHD Network, and the European ADHD Alliance. And before this, he was a head teacher of a specialist school for students with ADHD, ASD and ODD. Finton is a regular here at our studios. He's recorded a number of episodes of the SENDcast. He's a regular speaker at our virtual SEND conferences and has recorded a training course for us around exclusion. Welcome back, Finton.
1: Thank you, Dale. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You are a champion for ADHD, aren't you?
1: A champion? I I would say I've been involved in it for a, a while, I think uh, I would say I'm more of a uh, I was I was called by someone called John Visser who was very skeptical about this whole term some years ago who was very much more involved in what we used to refer to as uh, for children who had challenging behaviour as EBD, which stood for emotional behavioural difficulties, which our times some people call extremely blooming difficult every blooming day. EBD, of course, went to SEBD, which was social-emotional behaviour difficulties, and now, of course, it's social-emotional mental health. That's in the Code of Practice. I think a lot of people were very sceptical of this term, which they saw as, very American. This was back in the 80s and 90s and uh, and also something which did not reflect the present understanding of the term, particularly here in the UK. So John Visser, who was a professor at Birmingham University, who had said that he was very sceptical about the term. He called me the most reasonable person who was talking about ADHD on the circuit. So I will take that, Dale, as the most reasonable person talking about ADHD in the circuit versus a champion. I'm happy to sort of help uh, demystify the term and help both children, schools and families work and support children who have the traits.
0: I'd still say you're a champion.
1: It's it's most of our podcasts with you
0: either nothing about ADHD. We'll we'll squeeze it in somehow. It always ends up in that podcast for a good reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, I am, uh, you know, having written a number of books. Uh, I, I, in fact, I was asked recently, "Does ADHD really exist?" And I had to say, well. I hope it does. I've written eight books on the thing. But I asked this person who said to me, does it really exist? I said, right now, this might be the best way of describing a group of traits or behaviours that can't be better explained by any other reason. And I think that's really where it is. Because, you know, something like a term like emotional behavioural difficulties is a very broad term, which doesn't really describe anything in specific. It describes just a range of of what is, you could be say, as behaviors and emotions. Whereas ADHD is very specific towards three main traits, which is impulsivity, inattention, hyperactivity. And I think once you start drilling down to what are the core traits and then thinking about what they are, how they impact, then you can really seek to support individuals who have those traits.
0: So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that's what currently ADHD stands for, but you've written you want to change the D's.
1: Yeah, and this is something which is uh, which comes out of a long story because we'd still tend to refer to uh, the term as ADHD and ADD. In fact, in America, they kind of use ADD as a collective way of uh, calling the whole thing. I think partly because you've got four letters, which is unusual in SEN. It's always ASD or or ODD or PDA, and ADHD has these four letters in. But part of the reason is it, it comes from a story that um, some years ago, and I hadn't, as a teacher trainer, ever really heard the term, but it was about 15 years ago, I overheard a parent say to another parent, I oh, was at an ASD meeting, actually, it was an autistic spectrum sort of meeting. She said, well, she said, my son doesn't have ASD, he has more ADD. And the other parent says, well, what does that stand for? She says well I think it stands for attention devastation disorder and when she was starting to talk about her son that is how she had interpreted the label because that was the impact that her son had on her family. Now of course we know that that devastation disorder is not correct it is either attention deficit disorder or more correctly attention deficit hyperactivity disorder but it occurred to me then that the power of words is really quite important. You know, if you see something as a problem, then you perceive it as a problem. If you see it as an opportunity, then you might see it as that. And I've never liked the term deficit, because it's not actually that accurate, really, in this particular case. And because actually, they have quite a lot of hyperactivity. <laughs> so for example, and as a disorder as well, I think then people see it always as a negative And Yes, it, there can be a challenge to it, but also we need people who have these traits because these are the people who will sometimes create, um, explore and develop an, an awful lot of very, very ingenious, it has been seen over history, very important sort of uh, implications for us as society. So the point is, is that I'm trying to sort of like find people to think about it in a more positive way. I had an idea about how I might do that, which um, I'll give you the full description in a minute.
0: Excellent. Go on, I want to hear it. Okay,
1: well, I'm on a personal mission to change the Ds in ADHD to be more useful, more positive, and therefore ultimately lead to better practice, and that is to change deficit and disorder. So what it really is is developmental differences. Because children or people with ADHD, it's not a deficit, it's not a disorder, it's a developmental difference. And what that essentially means is that those core traits we were talking about, impulsivity, hyperactivity and inattention, are just not at the same level, the same stage as a person's age. And that's how we tend to judge children, particularly in the school system. And I think my experience is showing me that if people start talking about developmental differences, as opposed to deficits and disorders, they start thinking of the child and what the child is doing in a much more pragmatic, positive and much more supportive way. I suppose deficit, you're just focusing on what's down, what's behind. But
0: is it not a case of in some areas they're further ahead?
1: Yes, I mean that's is the issue. See, there's a lot of time people talk about developmental delay and there can be a developmental delay in certain areas. So the, the issue if you have a 9-year-old with AD ADHD it is often the case they might not have the skill set of, of another nine-year-old when it comes to waiting their turn or focusing on a material, but they might also have an incredible ability to sort of see things in a more lateral way, which might be well in advance of nine. It could be at a 13-year-old age level and in terms of their creativity and in terms of some of their productivity in certain areas. So the points are very much not distributed in an average way. So you, you often find that they have a skill set lower than their peers in some but much higher than their peers in some that range if you like is something that we don't I think always acknowledge we tend to always look at it as you say as a deficit whereas you could say it's almost a surflet
0: yep so I was talking to Fintan before the podcast about how I kind of feel that we all have a certain number of points we can use to create our personality if you ever play any games, either like Dungeons and Dragons or things like that, you either roll for your for those um, points, or you have a you have forty points. You can assign it to your dexterity, your strength, your all these sorts of things. And yeah, some people. There's obviously a fashion in this world to have them organised in a certain way, and they're the the norm who fit in and do this. But you could roll those dice or have those points in a different place, and. Yeah, in certain situations, that's not helpful. Yeah. In other situations, it's going to be such a benefit to you. However, currently, school is not one of those places.
1: Yes, I, th- I think that's true. and I, 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 th- I love the analogy as well. And, and I think it was it was years ago when I was first working in dyslexia, this occurred to me then. It's just occurred to me that, and, and we all know that a lot of people who have dyslexia are quite creative in other areas. But, you know, so they might not, if a nine-year-old might not have the same reading age as another nine-year-old, they might be functioning as a seven or a six-year-old because they do have so they learning difficulties in accessing, you know, the, the, the words for whatever reason. So say if five points is the average, you know, that you need to have as a nine-year-old to read at a nine-year-old level, they might be functioning a, a two out of ten as opposed to a five out of ten. But they might, in terms of their creativity and their artistic ability, be at an eight out of ten. And it seems to me that those points are just distributed in an uneven way. And as you say, schools go towards, you tend to pitch very much at your traditional learner, which is how it works. And then you tend to find that those skill sets are sometimes seen very differently when you go towards the workplace, who people obviously want literacy skills at a certain level, but they want that creativity, they want that innovation, they want that difference in how you can see certain things. And we know that people who have dyslexia, ADHD, tend to go into sometimes very creative, artistic, very entrepreneurial type jobs. In the same way that we know that some children who have ASD who might not have the points distribution in a social setting as a 5 out of 10, they might be at a 8 out of 10 when it comes to their ability to to be logical and to work in an internet type based system or in a game type system in a different level. I've got
0: very limited understanding of dyslexia, very limited exposure and doing a podcast every year ago with Aaron Smith learning about, yeah, he has these difficulty here, but just because he's dyslexia doesn't mean he doesn't have anything to say, it doesn't mean he doesn't enjoy books or stories. And the way his mind works was fascinating. But whenever you hear about dyslexia and ADHD, generally it's seen as a deficit. It's seen as less, not yeah. different. And that's yeah. your big change. You want to change that to so it's not less. It's yeah, in this way, it's less. But you actually aren't thinking about where is it better, where is where are their strengths.
1: Very much so. And while we're talking about it, I'm not just stopping with it's going to be attention, developmental, hyperactivity differences. I'm not stopping there. I'm you know I'm going with autistic spectrum differences. I'm going with oppositional defiant differences. I'm going with specific learning differences. It's not just or bipolar differences. You know, it's not just on one D. So very much so. I think what we've got to do is get this issue across about how it's developmental differences. And those developmental differences, as you well say, can be below the chronological age in certain skills, but it's above the chronological age in other skills. And I think if you start thinking of it in that way, then you see it less as a problem and more as an opportunity.
0: Yeah, because you are literally finding out, okay, so where are their skills? How can we we develop those skills? And that goes back to, you said coach earlier and a coach is someone who looks at a set of skills and develops those skills. So coach is better. If you're a teacher and you find this offensive, I find a teacher is kind of teaching a curriculum and teaching those sorts of things. Coach is almost, yeah, I see that as, you want life coach. <laughs>
1: life yeah, I mean, know. I think, you know, the, the, what I was basically, you know, we were, thanks, Dale's picked up on a really important way. I, I was talking about teachers being not just teachers of, of a subject. But they're, they're basically coaches of a person you're teaching a person some skills but you're also coaching them in in others in terms of how to learn it and and to a certain extent maybe even aspects of what you're learning in in terms of what to emphasize on I'll tell you an example of being an actual, we call coaches now, when the kids were, I used to do under nine rugby, whatever, you could, you know, you, you could see all the kids lining up. And I was a coach, rugby coach, and I was looking at them thinking, you know, which one of them is, you know, they're not all going to be the same, they're all going to play in the same position. You know, some of them are going to be on the wing, some of them are going to be in the centre, some of them are probably going to be in the front row. You know, you don't have those decisions sided then, but you can see different strengths in the individual in front of you. and as a coach my job was to was to help them develop themselves in in the best area that they could based on you know a, what they wanted to do, and also in terms of what they were able to do. And you had different positions, as I said, to basically coach. So I'm not saying that all classroom teachers are sports coaches. What I am saying is you're going to have certain people who are going to be better than others in certain things. And, and it's about us us helping everyone get to a certain level. We all know we need to get to certain levels in things to access the next level of educational attainment. But we've also got people who've got strengths and weaknesses and and we want want to help the weaknesses, sure, but we need to make make sure we nurture those strengths. We need to be making sure we nurture those strengths and not just concentrating on the weaknesses because I think often that's what we do. And then what sometimes happens is in order to give them more of the same, you know so so if they need extra reading because they're low what tends to happen is they get taken out of the class that they might be excelling in in order to do that and that is just something which we have to sort of find a way around yeah i think i was say you're talking about we, we support
0: those areas with the deficits we support them we find those strengths and try and support those but you may find that that child doesn't know what their strengths are they they know what their deficits are because everyone tells them <laughs> Yeah, But what's that strength? What is it they're good at? And if you can help that child find that and identify that and help them
1: push that, that will have a huge impact on them. If you take attention deficit, it is a confusing term because people will say to me, oh, he can do it when he wants to. He can do it when he wants to. He can do it when he's interested in what he's doing. And, you know, and that is actually the case. They absolutely can. If they're interested in what they're doing and who they're doing it with, you will get someone who will focus for a long period of time. And it is, is the alliance So people say they're doing it deliberately. They're not doing it liberally. They find it very hard to do certain things. And when they can't do it, they don't always have the attention skills of their peers to meet that target in the way they're expected to. That's why they need extra support. But when they're really stimulated by what they're doing and who they're doing it with, you will see them concentrate for, you know, for hours on end on certain things. And people say, you know, oh, it's always on their terms. It doesn't quite work that way. There has to be a balance, obviously, with helping them get to the level that we need them to, but at the same time, it's just understanding their rhythms. And as I said, your point we're trying to get across is you see. It. I mean, there wasn't used to be a term called reframing. I'm not sure that everyone sees this in that way. So, for example, it was like someone is interrupting in class. Oh no, he's actually only overly enthusiastic. I never quite bought into it myself because I think some people will just go, "Oh, I'm not listening to that." He's a do good. So it's not quite like that. The principle is is that. If you see it as a problem, it will be a problem. If that person sees you as thinking as them as a problem, in my experience, certain kids, they start off wanting to learn. But if they get battered and bruised enough, they start moving into, a you know, I won't learn. And then they move into a don't care phase. When they move into a don't care phase, they start thinking, well, the best I can be is the worst I can be. That's the best I can be. And once you've done that, then you've got a lot of layers that have come on top and you've got to strip them away. So that's what we're trying to prevent. Okay, we're going to go on a slight sidetrack here. So I said at the beginning what your job is and what you do. Give me a rough idea of what you enjoy about your job and what skills you use. My job now is very much working with schools, uh, teachers, and to a certain extent with parents. I'll start with the parents first because parents obviously are extremely concerned obviously about what the future holds for their child and they are usually receiving a lot of what they see as negative news about how he's not doing this, he's not doing that, his sister is more advanced than him or her or lots of things and they're very worried about the future. So with parents and you know. Quite rightly, if he's not and if getting calls from the school, so what we try and do with the parent is to sort of say to them, look, okay, let's take the emotion out of it. We are where we are. What do we need to do to support him? And let's not focus on the label. Let's focus on the reality, the traits, the actual scores, and everything else. You work with that, and then I say to them, well, what is he good at? And they're like, well. Why are you asking me that? And I'll say, well, because obviously I want to know if he's going to be spending some time on this, what can we do to extend him? What can we do to, you know, get him to be positive about things he likes? And it is often the fact that he is good on a computer. He is good with drawing. He is good with music. He is good with sport. And that's what we've got to do. The second thing then I drop in this, this idea. I say, does he get on better with younger and older? in terms of socialization, it's often their peers he's having problems with. He hasn't got friends, he's not being invited to parties. and And the parent will look at me and say to me, how do you know this? How do you know my child? And it's because, you know, developmentally, they are two or three years below the chronological age in certain skills and two or three years above. So that works in a social setting. So that is why they often come across as being immature and then sometimes almost precocious because that developmental delay is taking place. You've just described me. <laughs> <laughs> because you're only really 14. Anyway, but the point is, the second part is is going into a school setting and getting again, talking about not terms, but traits and getting people to understand we've all got traits. We're all on spectrums. And then getting people to understand that he or she is not doing this to get at me or to disrupt me, that he or she has a developmental difference. That is somewhat something neurological that they're not completely in control of. And then once a person starts seeing that it's something in the child that is causing this to happen, as opposed to what the parents did or didn't do, they start feeling a little more relaxed about, how therefore they can do some differences to help that child. And once the penny drops about what developmental differences really means, they start thinking in a much more inclusive, pragmatic, and I would say more positive way about how to support people. And that's what I do. So to me,
0: picking that apart and really summarising it up as like a job description, is travel, there's lots of meeting people, quite social there's making a difference you know meeting finding lots of different problems
1: problem solving making a difference
0: summarizing it really shortly
1: yeah I think what we're trying to do is to get people to understand that not everyone is the same and because you're different doesn't mean that it's a negative thing it means that you have other criteria that we need to be nurturing so where i'm going with this so if i took you out of your current job where you use
0: all these skills and basically what you've learned about yourself is this is what i really like doing Mm. so i've kind of shaped my job to suit what i enjoy what i what makes me happy and things like that so if i took you straight out of your job and said finton tomorrow you're now going to be set in the next five years studying the migration pattern of some random penguin antarctica and you're going to spend the next year generally alone looking at computer screen and antarctica i would probably say you you might start appearing as to have ADHD traits.
1: I think you would see me looking like I was going to run around the room a a billion times. The only ironic element to that story is, Dale, I was a zoology major at university, so I do quite like the animals. Having said that, to study penguins in a position like that, in an environment where I was having to just look at penguins, you would see a lot of similar traits to what you are we are describing today. As adults,
0: you, to quote Alison Knowles, you choose your reality, you've Correct. made your reality. So you've literally, generally most of us will choose a job, a career,
1: the way of living which fits with us. I mean, that, and that's absolutely right. We, As an adult, you get a choice in what you do for a living. As a child, you don't. And as I said, schools are very much into compliance, everyone doing the same thing in the same sort of way. You haven't got a choice. My wife works at the Surrey Wildlife Trust, and, and, and there's a bunch of lads there who are called the, I'll just call, they're called the tree pirates. They are amazing. They are sculptures of trees, and they basically make all these designs of different shapes and size, you know, the wood and carving, and they are absolutely superb at what they do. I would say, and I have spoken to a few of them, what was it like at school? And I think you can say that they didn't enjoy school. You might describe them even now as what we used to call a word you probably don't use anymore, called scallywags. Not many people will hear that word anymore. But you can absolutely, as an adult, they've chosen an area which is very much in keeping with their learning style with what they they do and i will make the point that adhd the traits you can see they are accentuated very much by the environment and if you've made your environment more you know more movement based you've made it more stimulating in a way that suits how they see situations and read the world you will not see the same impact if you like the negative impact that you might do by asking someone to sit down for six hours a day five days a week
0: I've now got to use that word so I can imagine those young scallywags at school getting to that point in secondary where they say where the school says to them what do you want to be when you grow up what's your career and I bet you they probably I'm just assuming assuming lots of things here they didn't know because all they really knew at that point is all the stuff they couldn't do They didn't know what they could do. They didn't know what they enjoy because generally they've just ended up by conforming, focusing on all the things they find difficult and don't enjoy. And they probably left school, again, just very stereotypically assuming it didn't go too well. And then at some point they found
1: something they liked and then they went for it. I suspect so and it's not to say that they all are going to be you know outdoors working outdoors it could have been but your point is as an adult you tend to sort of choose the things that you like to do that stimulate you and you tend to do them you know quite well if you continue in that job in comparison to other people Uh, and a school you don't and I think you're probably right they probably didn't have an awful lot I, I, I and this won't work for everybody but I use the cricket analogy quite a lot to describe people have different rhythms of how they learn and a lot of individuals in the secondary school are doing what, they're playing the long game, they're playing test match cricket, they're playing the Alistair Cook way, they're playing big innings because they're doing it for the, they want to do well for the teacher, they want to do well for their parents, they're doing it well for a career, they're playing, and schools are set up for that, but children with ADHD are twenty twenty players, they're just trying to get finished the day, they're not worried about the term, they're not worried about the year, they're trying to finish the day, the different rhythm to how they learn and how they work like I say they're still all playing the same game but they're playing it in a different way and I think by understanding that rhythm that different level of need that way in which certain people react to the environment can be very helpful because it means I think you can adapt your approach to individuals who work in different ways in the same way that you would bowl a different way from test match to 2020 it might be boring you now you'd bat a different ways a different There's a different rhythm to how you play the game and therefore how someone will react to that.
0: I'm just going to have to trust you on that.
1: (laughs) Um, At school, you learn subject by subject, an hour on this subject, an
0: hour on this subject. I find that really disengaging. When I learn, I want to get my teeth into something. So we're sitting in a studio that I built. We're using our podcast equipment, which I researched, Around us is the equipment we use for the conferences we record and Finton's recorded stuff in here. And I learn everything in this room I learned about and learned how not to do things, how learned to do things. I did lots and lots of research, and it took me a long time. And I absolutely loved it. And there's been talk about project-based learning. And they talk about this like with some enterprise skills, is doing a project, because when I did this, I use a huge a range of skills. I use math skills. I use IT skills. I thought geography, I DT, huge range of skills, all in that one project. And it was really easy to see where, what I enjoyed. But when you just do it as in subjects in isolation, you're not really getting your teeth into stuff. You're not learning about it. You're not seeing the problem solving. You're just going through the
1: curriculums in each subject to make the government happy. Just to go off a slight direction before I go today. If I go to a class and uh, watch a certain child, if I watched you at Dale in, in a school sort of some years ago, I think I'd have seen your traits in certain classes, and I wouldn't have seen them in others. Yeah, because if there was classes that were more design based, there were more kind of interactive, computer based. If they were uh, classes that were more movement, if it was science, I suspect I would have seen you sort of interact in a, what would be a fairly what would be seen as a traditional manner? I think if I'd watched you in a in a class where a teacher was talking about history for an hour, I think I would have seen some traits, you know. And there is so sort a of certain. I'm not saying that it's all class because some history teachers can. I've seen history teachers teach brilliantly to all students with ADHD and not a, you know. But but certain teachers are teaching maybe from a water board. There's not a lot of movement, and so you see traits. So as I said before, the environment can very much accentuate the traits. I think yeah. they're probably already there, but you will see them. I think to your question about teaching in a slightly different way, there is room for that. I I know there's been talk now about scrapping GCSEs in the future or whether that will happen or not, I don't know. But it is a little unusual that in a country that I know our educational system is seen as a very good brand across the world, but it is very unusual for us to be working so hard towards narrowing our subjects at 16. You know, no one else does that. You know, we go to A-levels, you've got to narrow to three subjects. Versus, you know, the Scottish don't do it, the Irish don't do it, the French don't do it. They all have a much more balanced curriculum going all the way through up to 18. And I think to a certain extent, we do hothouse our children academically in order to get to 16 when then you can specialise. And that is a little unusual. I mean, it's very unusual compared to other countries. And I suppose the argument is is that if we have this this level where you've got to achieve a, a group of nine subjects at 16, it doesn't allow a lot of flexibility to do the sort of things that you're saying that we could do. And, you know, we know that in Germany, for example, they do value the more kind of vocational pathway at 11 versus academic. And I'm not saying our system doesn't work, as I said it's popular throughout the world, but it is unusual. I mean... I have a niece who's, uh, who's American, not a great example. But, so she's seven, and she wanted to uh, hear lyrics from a song that she liked, and so I wrote them out, and my mum said she can't read them. Now, I was writing that for a seven-year-old, you know, who I thought would be like a British seven-year-old who could have read these lyrics, but, but she couldn't because part of the issue is, is that when they're in American school, they're not actually finishing English at 16. They're finishing English at 18. They're finishing maths at 18. So therefore, there isn't the same drive to get to 16 as there is. It's a longer period of time. But I can tell you that, you know, seven-year-old American kids spend a lot of time doing show and tell, whether you like it or not. So every seven-year-old American kid can sell you a used car because they spend time on that sort of skill. Now, it's just an example, not to say that, you know, we have to be, be like the Americans, We, but it's just saying that, There is a different way of educating our children that would definitely suit some of the non-traditional learners who didn't have to race to get to 16 to be at the same stage. And why it's a problem for them is, remember, they're developmentally different. So if you have ADHD, you could be two or three years below your peers at, say, the age nine. So now you're a six-year-old. You will narrow but it means that when you get into secondary school, you're still going to probably be two years behind. As it gets more intense and more intense, you'll probably start to disenfranchise, you'll probably start to get more, more disinterested and get more behind because you've got to get to 16. So your symptoms or your actions will act out and you'll be seen as being disengaged.
0: But And the other side is I've got a nephew who's gone into year seven who loves microbiology. Yeah. And he goes to science and he's kind of going. When are we doing microbiology? And They're like uh, year ten, and yeah. he yeah. he loves science. He's earth space science. He, he's absolutely love it. And the level he's gone to in year seven is phenomenal, but it's going to go. It's like being in the bicycle lane for him at school. What he what, where he's working is yeah. he's, so he's not only going to get he's disinterested in the subjects where he's behind in. He's going to get disinterested or lose interest in those subjects where he's ahead.
1: Yeah, and I think there's always going to be children who, who sort of see the world in that way. And I suppose the argument is, I mean, I was saying, we were talking about this years uh, before, there used to be this, uh, this term that we used to use called able, gifted and talented, which was a term which there's no diagnosis actually for it. You know, there's not a diagnosis for it. You've got high functioning individuals in certain subjects. It is almost certainly children who have traits of ASD or ADHD fit that mode. I think the answer for that is recognising this gifted and talented element in individuals and certainly allowing some flexibility in that so it might not be that he or she cannot do the tests that everyone else is doing or it could do but he or she is given an extended project or given that anything you know teachers are saying well when we've we got the time to do this well we've got time to do that it's not something that maybe you have to do all the time but I think recognizing that someone has an extra skill whether there's an extra club they can go to or there's some other facility you know you do tend to find that this internet thing that we use does offer us a lot of flexibility in in doing that sort of stuff but you are right you know you do get individuals there your nephew is an example of someone who has a particular interest does tend to be something you tend to find with children with asd traits stroke adhd And it's trying to nurture that as well. But there are only so many hours in the day. I do hear that for teachers at this point. But just the fact that you are saying that and acknowledging the fact that this child has that extra dimension, if you like, is also a positive thing because it will mean people start thinking of them as not a deficit and that's different, which is really what we were trying to say. Yeah, and that's that thing is, I hope he won't, but in reality he could become
0: disruptive in both the lessons where he's struggling and yeah. the lessons where he's bored. So yeah. that could then lead on to behaviour issues and all of that, and it's just because that works not at the right level, that works not at the right level, and he's bored or he's frustrated. So it's same if I sat you in Antarctica for that year, yeah, it would be the same with you as an adult. So we just got to think about, as adults, we have so many choices. We can remove ourselves from situations we don't want to be in. We can remove ourselves from jobs. Your job might change because something's changed in that company. And what you really enjoyed has now been taken away from you, given something else. It's like, I'm not happy. So you will go, I'm not happy. I'm going to go somewhere else where I'm happy. As that child in secondary school, you have no
1: control yeah, you don't have the choice or the freedom that you have in a, in a you know as you say as an adult, and it's something that we got to keep an eye on. You do tend to have more traditional learners though, Dale, the school than non-traditional yep. learners. So we have to find you know it's baby and bathwater stuff here, but we, you know maybe a bad analogy. But, you know we've got to be have to be open-minded about those differences at the same time. And the word see, the word differentiation sounds like it's too it's too much like too many too too much work. It sounds like too many only sheets to fill out and stuff. It's just allowing maybe that child, for example, your nephew, who has this particular interest microbiology, maybe he spends forty minutes on what is the traditional stuff, but in the last twenty minutes he can go off and do something in a booth where he can do something at six form level on on microbiology you know that's differentiation you know it's not a worksheet it's just allowing him to do something different because you know it's the old analogy of someone who's good at something gets more of the same well why would you give someone if he's done 10 questions you can do it because they finish quickly why would you give another 10 of the same thing to do it defeats the object and and that's extension work or you can call it what you like but it's just recognizing the other thing you said, which is a very hard thing to get across, but the issue of boredom is something that I spend quite a bit of time on when I do training because boredom is real to people who have it. And I think teachers shy away from this because they're a bit worried about either being perceived as boring or they question the fact that it is boring. And the thing about boredom is it's it's like an emotion that someone feels and it's real to them. you know. And if you, someone is angry, you can't say to them, just be happy because they're angry. You've got to understand why they're angry and help them to be more happy. If someone is genuinely bored, you can't say to them, be more interested. It just doesn't work that way. You have to understand why they're bored and what you do about it. In fact, I've written three articles on my website on boredom, because I'm fascinated by boredom because the truth of the matter is we also need boredom because it's out of boredom that most great inventions and creations take place. Someone is doing something and gets a bit, oh, and then they go off in some other direction and they notice it. And that is the key, it's noticing it. Marie Curie, it goes on and on and on. All the best inventions, all the best medicines that were discovered as procedures have all come usually out by mistake. Someone recognizing it. But the point is that we shy away from boredom we're afraid of it but if it's real it's real for the person that's feeling it and the truth of the matter is children with adhd do have a low threshold of boredom and when they're bored they look for things to do to stimulate themselves and that does mean sometimes mean in movement or looking out the window and don't think the other students might not be bored either but they have the ability to do boredom. They have the ability to look as if they're interested, but they're really not. And a lot of people will able to do that. And getting through school, a lot of it is being able to disguise your boredom. And people who are ADHD aren't able to disguise their boredom, which is why you find you see them when they're doing things. But don't be afraid of boredom. I wouldn't say embrace it so much, but recognise the fact that it's real for someone who feels it. And you can't just say, be more interested. It doesn't work that way.
0: I get bored. <laughs> I suffer from boredom. And what I will say is a person isn't boring. Where my head is at the time can make a situation boring. Yeah. So sometimes I'll watch a TV program and I'm really happy and I'm great. Yeah. Then another time I watch this and I'm, I'm literally absolutely bored. Nothing's changed in that situation apart from my mental state at that time. I might be... Something's gone wrong, which means I'm thinking about that, and that's what makes me bored.
1: Yeah. Yes. It's
0: not yeah. the person that's boring. Mm. It's, there are times where if I've had a great week, I sit in front of the TV, I can watch a boring film and be really interested. Yeah. But if I've had a hard week and things have gone wrong and I'm still not solved, I could sit in front of my best, my favorite film, and I'd be bored. Yeah. My head isn't in that room. My head is somewhere else. My dad did this. I remember sitting at dinner with my dad. And my dad wasn't really in that room. He's somewhere else programming. So yeah, boredom is
1: definitely real, but it's generally it's not about that person. And that's very true. I think, you know, because other people, oh, I'm not boring. And the fact is it's not About you, it's about them. That's the issue. And it isn't about, you know, you just happen to be in the way. But it's if that person is feeling it, yes, it is about them as opposed to you. So don't start thinking you're boring. It's the fact if someone is, if head, you said before, the head's not in the room. And what we know with ADHD, I always make this point that the the core symptoms are impulsivity, inattention, and actually hyperactivity is the least of the three for me. It's the impulsivity that causes most of their issues, actually, but the inattention is just as important. They don't have the ability to focus and do the things, an age-relevant situation, which is why they stand out. You know, you've got 28 kids in the room who might have Points have bought, you know, five out of ten. They've got two out of ten, which is why they look for stimulation, because developmentally they're different. If we keep going back to developmentally different, that will help. But then at other times, you know, so as you said, their head's not in the room. So it's the inattention that yeah. is the problem. And and they can be distracted. This is the thing about distracted people. They can be so distracted by their own thoughts that they can't focus on what you're saying. So it's not you, it's them I'm, I'm literally, I'm
0: envisioning like a primary school assembly. There are a load of kids, especially when you're all going in, all going out. There are 28 kids who are bored and it has no real impact on them. And then there are two kids who have just gone somewhere else and they're bored and they might be spinning or they might be doing something and that's their way. But that's a deficit there. But gain somewhere else because something else they'll be good at. And it is... It is a big thing. It isn't a deficit. Is they're very much a developmental difference. However, the world they're in is conforming to that current normal mould, which they've got to get through. But the problem is, and I will say this, is for those children, trying to conform is slightly damaging, would you say? I, I To me, I, I if think- you're trying to fit into that mould, it's not helping you.
1: Well, I think it's it's the fact that you, you can change the personality. I mean, there's, there's an elephant in the room here we haven't mentioned yet. Is one of the things we offer children who have these traits, sometimes to conform to the norm, is medication. Now, medication is, is something which some people think it, it's really useful. Some people hate the idea of it. What medication is doing is it's allowing that person who really has quite severe impulsivity and inattention to actually have a chance of acting in a similar way to some other people. But it does come with a cost because it will often change that person's personality to a a minor extent. You know, the spark will diminish. Now, people say that's a detriment. But what it's doing also is it's allowing that child who can't focus, can't compete with his peers to to learn English or maths, an opportunity to compete. But there's a trade-off on it really so i think the idea is what we've got to try and do is is make sure we we support them so they can have a chance to make to that next level at the same time we don't want to crush that spark we don't yep. want to stop that, that that ingenuity we don't want to curtail that so there is a bit of a trade-off in that and uh and i want to make the point that if you talk medication does not cure anyone it allows someone usually to focus a bit longer so they can hope to make a Different decisions. So if you couldn't play the guitar before you took medication, you won't play the guitar afterwards. It might help someone teach you how to play the guitar.
0: There's a documentary probably a couple of years ago, it was a Louis through one over in America, all about medication. And I thought, I'm gonna what I'm gonna learn about this. And he said in America, medication was the first thing you did. He medicated, and that wasn't always right. And one of the people on there didn't take their medication. And how do you? And he kept asking her, and she and she felt she needed it. So it's obviously, for that person, for where she was and where she wanted to be, medication was the right answer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... That, the that that was her choice and what she yeah. wanted. That's it's her, and I think what's happening is, you know, the, the issue of medication is people say it's being used far too much. Some people say it's being used far too little. You know, you, it, it, it's quite hard to get stats on it. And if you look at the newspapers, they'll talk about four times as many cases as it was last year. There's... There's some anomalies in that because sometimes you used to get a yearly prescription, now you have to get four prescriptions a year for the same person, figures are figures as we know. What we have I think is, an uh, America as you know, they saw this very much as a neurobiological difference they said medication goes in first with the other things afterwards. We tend to have been more conservative. We've tried the other things first. If they don't work, then we then medication is usually as a last resort. It's sometimes now a bit more of a balance over here, and over there, actually, they've gone back to a bit more of a balance since of yeah. documentary. But the issue with medication is, as I said before, you, you can look at it in two ways. If you think these traits are caused by a neurobiological difference and dopamine and noradrenaline not working in a, in a traditional way at your stage of development in comparison to your peers and having an option not to narrow the gap but to give you an opportunity of having someone help you narrow that gap then that seemed to me to be reasonable. If you think that this child's traits are to do with the fact that he or she uh, has been poorly parented or, or hasn't ha- has watched television all night for, you know, a million years or, or, or then, and then I understand why people are against it, but in itself, not the answer, it, what it is, is it, invi- it it allows someone who's struggling to actually focus in a room where they're being distracted by their own thoughts or being attracted by a chair moving, it allows them the opportunity to narrow down to try and focus on what someone is asking them to do in the same way as other people do. But what you tend to find is when they're interested in what they're doing as they get older, as you said, and they work in, a, in an area they're interested in, you know, they're interested in what they're doing and they don't need medication in the way to help them get through that experience and and those traits can seem to disappear because you've chosen the environment which suits you i mean it is true to say you know you always say if you're born with dyslexia it doesn't just fall off you at 15 or 16 but if you are in a school where you're having to read a lot and you have to sort of do those things then as an adult you won't necessarily see it if you're having someone else do that for you if you are a, don't know if you're a salesperson speaking all the time and someone does your book you know so you won't see the traits same way with ADHD. I don't think the traits ever really grow out of them so much. They become less evident based on the environment that you put yourself in. And as you've said at the beginning, as an adult, you get to choose what you do and who you work with. And in a school setting, you don't have a lot of choice, at least not at the moment, which is what we might be thinking of doing something differently in the future. So
0: I personally, Fintan, would still say you are a champion of ADHD because... <laughs> There is, it's it is changing people's perceptions. It's making people think a different way.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Dale. I will take the, the word if, uh, on board, and uh, thank you for that acknowledgement. As I said, I think we're all in our own way trying to help and support children who are developmentally different, be that ADHD, ASD, you know, ODD, or who just are, you know, have a different rhythm of learning. And um, more people see it not just as a deficit. Uh, as a difference, I think that will we'll get a, get that message across in a, in a more uh, in a more positive way
0: cool. so thank you for coming on the show today Finton's provided me a list of books of which uh, five are his and one isn't <laughs> again not a champion at all.
1: No well I just thought that I uh, I'd follow the thread in a different format
0: yeah I'll be adding all those to the show notes and sharing Finton's contact details and you'll find the show notes on our website www.thesencast.com. <laughs> So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website. And please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at TheSendCast. On Facebook and Instagram, we are TheSendCast. And if you listen to us to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let others know what you think. Or please mention us on social media. Share the news. Share the great podcast with others. Before we go, please check out Training for Education's website. You'll find a number of guests on the same our speakers at our conferences, like Finton. They've also, some of them recorded their own training courses. And Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to SendCast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send Conference, future or past, by using the code SENCAST10. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from him.
1: Bye.